you'll open your copy of the Word of God to Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14 is where we will draw our sermon from this Lord's Day morning. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. The text reads as follows. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. I'm using as a topic for these two verses only two ways. Only two ways. We make choices on a daily basis. Many of them are routine and mundane. What to eat? Or maybe should we say where to eat? What to wear? Etc. To be sure, some of our choices are more significant. But none of our choices in life supersedes in importance the one we make regarding the spiritual dimension. The choice of Christ or Satan, righteousness or sin, heaven or hell. The bottom line of human existence is making the right spiritual choice. We see this reality in the lives of Adam and Eve. They chose wrongly when they disobeyed God. And it cost them profoundly. They became sinners. They came under the curse of death. Their innocence and their relationship before God, their creator, was changed. Their relationship with one another was altered as well. Adam's relationship with his environment was changed. Eve's relationship to childbearing was changed. And they lost living in the Garden of Eden. Scripture records God presenting people with a choice. Through Moses, the people of Israel, in Deuteronomy 30, verse 15, God says, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, that is, well-being, and death and adversity. Through Joshua... 2415, that book, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. You'll recall Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He made his choice. Everyone has to make that choice. No one escapes the responsibility of choosing in the spiritual dimension. In this part of the Sermon on the Mount, God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ, presents choices before his hearers. We'll explore them in detail later. The two trees, two builders. And in our text, two ways. Men must choose. Jesus has shown what God requires of those who belong to his kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. Now, 
He calls men to enter into it. And he teaches the consequence of not doing so. You see, our choices matter. They matter significantly. Verse 13, the A portion, choosing the right way. That's what we'll give the heading to verse 13. A, enter through the narrow gate. The kingdom of heaven is the realm of salvation. It is the dimension in which the king rules over the hearts of the subjects. The beatitude people whom we've spoken about as we worked our way through the Sermon on the Mount are in the kingdom. Beatitude people are born again people. Beatitude people are people right with God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beatitude people are what we are, Christians. And all genuine Christians are in the kingdom of salvation. They're in that kingdom where God rules over their hearts. He dictates how they're to live and to think and to be. All of that because they're in his kingdom. They're under his rulership. He is their spiritual monarch. Here, Jesus is calling to those outside the kingdom of heaven, outside the kingdom of salvation. He is offering an invitation with his words, enter through the narrow gate. To enter the kingdom is tantamount to receiving salvation. We see this equation articulated in Matthew 19 verses 23 and through 25, as the disciples equate being saved with being in the kingdom, which is true. The word enter here in our text, in the Greek grammar, conveys a sense of urgency. Do it now. Do not procrastinate. Why would Jesus convey a sense of urgency when he says enter now and using the grammatical form that he did? Here's the reason why. The urgency is because the stakes are infinitely high. A human soul's destiny is at stake. Do not remain outside the kingdom of salvation. Enter it at once. Enter through the narrow gate. Now, you need to understand To get in the kingdom, you have to go through the narrow gate. It's a metaphorical language. Jesus is letting us know something by using this language about what it means to enter the kingdom. That word narrow. We get the word stenography from it. Compressed our abbreviated words. Stenography. But this compressed writing conveys to us an understanding of the word narrow. It's constricted. It's restrictive. It is tight. It is cramped. It is constricted. It is restrictive because you cannot bring your sins with you. Repentance from sin is required. Jesus, beginning his ministry, as we saw in Matthew 4, 17, said this, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The apostles echoed Jesus' words in their preaching to the lost. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to the multitude assembled before him on the day of Pentecost, these words, Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul, too. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, 
speaking to the Ephesian elders, he's recounting his ministry among them. And he said he solemnly testified both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is an element that cannot be excluded from getting into the kingdom. There must be repentance to enter into the kingdom. What is repentance? It's turning from sin. It is saying no to evil. It is saying no to wickedness. It is saying no to Satan. It is saying no to the world. It is saying yes to God. Charles Spurgeon notably remarked, these words, quote, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one sin may you keep. They must all be given up. It's a narrow game. It's constricted. You got to leave some things behind. The narrow gate includes self-denial. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16 verse 24 if anyone wishes to come to after me he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me see jesus said first of all you need to understand if you're going to follow me you've got to deny you if you're going to follow me you must take up your cross that means you've got to be totally committed to me even to the point of dying if necessary He says, if you're going to come after me, you have to do those things and then you follow me. I am your leader. I am in charge. Now, you do what I dictate. You follow my mandates. You go where I want you to go. That's what it means. Now, don't be fooled by easy believism, which espouses salvation consists simply of saying or affirming the terms of the gospel. Simply saying, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross, was buried and raised from there. Those are essential, but that is a summary of the gospel. There has to be a changed life. That's what repentance is. It's not enough to affirm some terms about the historic death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That has to change your life. You see, if you simply affirm those facts about Jesus, your faith is no better than a demon's faith. That's just simply demonic faith. Do you not know that demons understand that Jesus died, was buried, and raised from the dead? They know that. They're not ignorant. They're better theologians than you are. Oh, yes. They believe that God is one. You do well, James said, but the demons believe that. And James says, they shudder. The reason they shudder is because they understand that they're going to be judged because they're in rebellion against God. Although they know the truth about God, they know the, uh, the reality about Jesus Christ, yet they're not submitted to them. They don't obey them. They are in revolt against them. It's not enough to have head knowledge. It's not enough to have mental assent. And there are a lot of people populating churches on church rolls, and they just have a head knowledge of Jesus. But they don't have a faith that saves. That's what James talks about. Can that faith save? A faith that doesn't work? No. Don't be fooled. Don't be fooled. It's not enough to be orthodox. You better be orthodox. That's important. But your orthodoxy better result in orthopraxy. Orthodoxy means right understanding right truth orthopraxy means right practice the practice of the word of god in your life 
You see, you need to understand saving faith. I think we've been so a bill of goods. We're thinking you're going to heaven just because you've got some fire insurance. Yes, a lot of people, that's all they want. They say, I want to go to heaven, but I want to live like I'm in hell now. You know, mm-hmm. no, 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 no. You see, saving faith consists of three elements. May I enumerate them for you? Number one, mental. The mind understands the gospel and the truth about Christ. The mind understands the gospel and truth about Christ. That's the intellectual component, the mental component. Yes, you have to know who Christ is. You have to know what Christ has done. You have to understand all that. You know, know that he's God incarnate, God in the flesh. You have to know that he was sent here from the Father, and he went to the cross for the express purpose of dying for sinners, and he was raised the third day. Yes, you have to know that. You have to know who he is and what he did. That's mental. That's one component, but that's not enough. I told you the devil knows that. Number two, emotional. One embraces the truthfulness of those facts with sorrow over sin and joy over God's mercy and grace. You see, this is where you say, I know that. Now I'm going to embrace that. I'm joyful for what God has done in his grace. I am sorrowful for my sins and my rebellion against him. But I'm thankful to God for his mercy and his grace toward me. You do understand that beatitude people, they have this. Because beatitude people, it says in Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. Mourn, talk mourning over sin. That emotional impact, I'm sorrowful over my sin. I've gr- I'm grieving because I've sinned against God, a holy God. I'm not grieving because I got caught. I'm grieving because I sinned against God. That's the second element. That's the emotional one. That's where there is sorrow and that's where there is joy. Then the third element of true saving faith is volitional. Volitional. The sinner submits his will to Christ and trusts him alone as the only hope of salvation. You get that? The sinner submits his will to Christ. He said, it's not my will, but your will be done. It's not my life now, it's your life. You take charge of my life. Whatever you want, Christ, I do. I submit my will to you because you're the authority in my life. You are my Lord. And I trust you alone. I'm not trusting my works. I'm not trusting anything I've done or do. I trust you alone for my salvation. Another one and nothing else. Volitional. The sinner submits his will to Christ and trusts him alone as the only hope of salvation. Oh, you say, how can a man do that? How can a man do that? How can a woman do that? Because after all, when you think about it, we love sin. We love being in charge of our own life. We want to call the shots in our life. How can I do this? How can there be repentance? And how can I turn from my sin? And how can I submit my life? And Christ will be in charge from now on. He will call the shots, make the determinations for what I do and where I go. I've got to follow the will of God. How can I do that? Let me tell you how you do it. You do it because of the grace of God. It's divine grace. We are saved by grace through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. What God has done, Ephesians 2, he has come and he has given us grace, undeserved faith. He enables us to believe. He enables us to do, to do the things that Christ commands. He enables us to enter the narrow gate. He enables us to repent. He enables us to deny ourselves. He enables us all of these things he does by his grace. Weren't for his grace. Grace, undeserved favor, undeserved favor, unearned favor. If it weren't for his grace, we couldn't do it at all. It's his grace. It's how you do it. And you know, you know, it's Jesus Christ is the only way. Notice the text. The text there in verse 14, the A portion says, for the gate is small. The way is narrow and the gate is small. Verse 14, the gate. It says the gate. Hey, Pule, in the original language, the article, definite articles there signifying it is the gate, the only one. It's a definite gate. It's the only way in. What that's saying is, is it's exclusively one way. Jesus is the only way into the kingdom. Only way to heaven. Let me tell you some people say, well, all roads lead to Rome. Well, maybe so. We ain't talking about going to Rome. (laughs) Amen. I'm not interested in going to Rome. I want to go to heaven, so show me the road that leads there. I go to Rome some other time, but right now I want to, how do I get to heaven? In this issue of the spiritual, there's only one road that leads to heaven. There are not multiple ways to heaven. There are not multiple roads to heaven. There's one road to heaven. Don't let anybody fool you. They're selling you a bill of goods when they say, well, any religion can get you in. They're all equal. I mean, come on. You believe it. You believe that. You believe another thing. God's going to shut you off. That's a lie. That's a lie from the devil. He wants you to believe a lie like that because he wants you to go to hell like he's going. You better believe the word of God. There's only one way. One way. Jesus said it. And I believe Jesus over any other, anybody who calls himself a spiritual leader or a guru. And you better too, right? Jesus said this in John 10, 9. I am the door. He changes the metaphor. He says, I'm the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. So when we get in, Jesus claims exclusivity again in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Only one way. (laughs) You got to come through him. He's the only way. So small, the gate is the definite one's exclusivity, the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only entry point into the kingdom. In verse 14, it continues here, narrow. The way is narrow. The rigors of discipleship, following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And we, we see this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. The way is narrow. The divine standard of righteousness. We've seen this as Jesus unfolds his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. The divine standard of righteousness. It is internal, not external. It's internal. The Pharisees, they were past masters at at external religion. They had a facade of religiosity. They appeared to be holy. But they were not. They were phonies. Inwardly, they're dead men's bones. Remember Jesus said about them? It's all outside. 
Everything was a sham. And Jesus says the righteousness that is required for a kingdom living and entry has to exceed that of the Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 5.20. And it's got to be internal. We see this in the book of Matthew. Jesus outlined it. Remember, people thought simply, if you didn't murder somebody, you were all right. I mean, you didn't get your uh, Uzi out and shoot somebody. But Jesus equates uh, anger with murder. It's internal. See, you don't ever have to actually take someone's life physically to be guilty of murder. It's internal. Remember, adultery. People say, oh, I've never done that. That's good. I'm glad you haven't. Don't. But if you've been doing it in your mind, you're guilty. Say amen if you can. It's what the word of God says. And what's real of following Christ is if a person is perpetually doing it, Jesus said, would you know what you need to do? Remember, he says, you need to get rid of your right eye. It'll make you stumble. Tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one part of your body, one of the parts of your body, than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Internal. It's the rigors of following Christ. Remember, there's another persecution. You'll be persecuted. Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There will be persecution for you standing up for Christ, evangelizing for Christ, living for Christ in a world that hates Christ. Jesus says, love your enemies. It's the rigors of discipleship. People want to hate their enemies. Jesus said, no, 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 no. You're going to follow me. You're going to love them. Pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness as a priority. Treating others as you want to be treated. All of that's involved in being a follower of Christ. That has to be there. It's the rigors of it. That's why Jesus said, and the way is narrow. The way is narrow. The way is the way of the godly. That psalm was read earlier, Psalm 1, in its entirety. And it, it... There's a demarcation between the godly and the ungodly. The godly love the word of God and they meditate on the word of God and they do the word of God and they're fruitful in their spiritual life. But the wicked are not so. In fact, the original language says not so the wicked. They're like chaff. They're worthless, blown away. They will not stand in the judgment. You see, the godly, they follow the word of God. They follow Christ. They do what he wants to do. And they don't hang around with scorners and mockers, sinners. They don't, who do you hang with? Who do you hang with? Are you hanging with mockers or are you hanging with people who say, let's obey God and follow Christ? You see, uh, the way is narrow as a holy life. A holy life. A lifestyle of holiness. And you'll notice something here in the text. The bottom of verse 14, and few who find it. Says, you know why they're not finding it? They ain't looking. <laughs> yeah, that's a problem. They, they don't want that. They, they like where they, they're living. They're not seeking God. But I'm going to tell you something. God will be found for the seeker. 
If you want salvation, God will be found by you because he promises it in Proverbs, uh, Jeremiah 29, 12, and 13. You will seek me after your, with your whole heart and you will be found. I will be found by you. Savingly, if you really want it, you can come, can know him. And I'm going to tell you what, you're going to choose the right way, right? Choose the right way. There are only two ways. You want to choose the right one. You don't want to choose the wrong one. That's our next heading, choosing the wrong way. Choosing the wrong way, verse 13, the B portion. And you notice, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. There's this gate. This other way. It's a wide gate. It accommodates the flesh. It accommodates all who want to enter on it. This is the popular choice. It's the people's choice. People entered this one in mass, in large numbers. Why do they go through the wide gate? Think it's wide, as opposed to narrow. This one's wide. See, what you can do in a wide gate, you can bring all your sins with you. You can keep them. You can bring the world with you. You can bring your worldliness with you. You can bring all that stuff that you just love with you that's ungodly. You can bring it because the wide way. Come on. Join us. And there's a crowd. You know, it must be a good way, a right way. Because look at all those folk. Don't follow the crowd. Because 85% of the people say this is the right way. You better check and see what the Word of God says. <laughs> Don't go by some poll that suggests that uh, this is the right way. Look at all those folk going over there. That's the wrong choice, choosing the wrong way, and people do it. Now, this way is, get in here, the gate is wide, and notice in verse 13, the way is broad. The way is broad. That word is spacious, roomy. You get on this road, and man, it is easy living. Who is on the broad road that is broad? The self-righteous, the scribes and Pharisees, professing Christians, those who are Christians in name only. And you have to know that, people. Don't think just because somebody says they are Christian that they are. There are some people going to be deceived right up to judgment thinking they're going to heaven. It's clear. Look at it, verse 22 of Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, the day of, the day of judgment, to the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I had no relationship with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. You didn't obey my father. You routinely practice disobedience to my word, my father's word. Depart. Where are they going to depart to? Hell. Don't buy that. You better check out what the word of God says. They're on the broad way. All this time, they thought they were going to heaven, that they're actually going to hell. The broad way is the path of the wicked. As Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 and 19 tell us, it's the way of the wicked. There's moral latitude on that way, as I've already indicated. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this, 
about that road, there is complete moral freedom. Complete moral freedom. Freedom to do what one wants to do. In a three-letter word, sin. And you know that sinners have a syndrome. Not S-Y, no, S-I-N syndrome. Judges 21, verse 25. Time, in the time of the judges in Israel, it says this in Judges 21, 25. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This broad way is very appealing. A West Indian who had chosen Islam over Christianity said his reason was that Islam, quote, is a noble, broad path. There is room for a man and his sins on it. The way of Christ is too narrow. End of quote. Ain't that something? Here's an unbeliever has assessed the reality and following Christ better than some people who are called preachers and who call themselves Christians. An unsaved man knows better. People on the broad way are drifting along to damnation. It is the road to hell. It's where they are headed. They have chosen the wrong way. And there were people on that road then when Jesus was speaking, he said, get off that road. Get off that road and come and enter the narrow gate. Choosing the right way, choosing the wrong way. The th third heading and final one, the outcomes of the choices. The outcomes of the choices. You see in verse 13, it, that word destruction. Destruction. Now, do you understand? Of course, we know that temporal choices spiritually have uh, temporal consequences, but more importantly, there are the eternal consequences. And Jesus here points out in verse 13 with that word destruction. The road sinners travel, their lifestyle leads to destruction. Now you say, what does that word mean? Destruction. You're thinking destruction probably in other terms, but let me tell you what the Greek means here. It does not refer to annihilation or existence. People will not cease to exist after they die. You continue to exist when you die, whether in heaven or hell. People who are destroyed. Destruction means loss of well-being, not being. You will still exist. Exist won't be a good existence. It's eternal ruin. That's what destruction means. The lost will forever experience life of uselessness, hopelessness, emptiness, and meaninglessness with no value, worth, purpose, goal, or hope. Think about that. A life Eternally useless, hopeless, valueless, no hope, no goals, ruined. Leon Morris describes the eternal existence of the lost this way. Quote, they pass into a night on which no morning dawns. End of quote. That's sad. In this life, 
when we have a bad time or circumstance, we always have in our minds there's hope because it's going to end. Things will be better. There's a better day coming. There's no such thing as a better day coming in hell. In fact, there is no day coming at all. So in addition to the hopelessness they will experience, there's a horrific nature of it in terms of punishment. And Jesus, in this gospel of Matthew, that's why the gospel is such good news. Because of what it delivers people from. The awful bad news. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 26, about those who commit lawlessness, the angels, verse 41, will do this. Will throw them, the lawless people, into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Think about it. In addition to there being a lack of hope and no value and useless and empty, then you experience this emotional trauma of weeping and gnashing of teeth in a furnace of fire. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. Jesus tells us this. He talked about the sheep and a goat judgment. These will go away, verse 46, into eternal punishment. The goats. The righteous and eternal life. People have wondered, is there punishment forever? Yes. The same word translated eternal for eternal life is the same word translated eternal in verse 46 for punishment. As long as Christians are with Christ in heaven, the unbelievers will be in hell in punishment. They will not cease to exist. There is no end to their misery and you know the Bible is quite clear of course as a singular author overall though there are many human authors there's one guiding author of the Holy Spirit and he says these things with one of the other writers just a little differently but the same reality in Romans chapter 2 verse 5 why it's important to come to Christ when you can. Let me look at verse 4. It says this, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? You're still here. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Notice that word, storing up, treasuring up punishment. In your unrepentance, people are doing this. They don't realize it day in and day out. They're sinning and they're sinning and they're sinning and they're sinning and they're sinning. sinning. It's like charging endlessly a credit card. Do you not know the bill is going to come due? And the bill will come due. God says, you got to pay up. 
And you notice something here. It's in the day of wrath. God's wrath against sinners who refuse to repent, refuse to get off the broad road, refuse to follow Christ, refuse to His grace. They spurned His love. And the judgment, you see how it's described it? Righteous. God doesn't do people wrong when he punishes them eternally. He's righteous in his judgment. You don't want to make that choice. The right choice is the one we open with. Verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. Verse 14, back in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, it leads to life. Leads to life. The final destination of the righteous is heaven, where they will experience the fullness of eternal life in the presence of God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, the righteous angels in absolute utter joy, purity, love, all the wonderful things that heaven will provide for all the believers for all time. That's where we're headed. Eternal life is not simply an an unending life. It's a quality of life. It's, in fact, as one man described it, the life of God in the soul of man. The redeemed man. One day, all believers are going to live together in joy and harmony, peace and love. Unbelievable harmony, peace and love in the presence of God our Father in where? The Father's house. Be in the Father's house. Now, I'm going to tell you, to me, this is a no-brainer. Choose the right way. Choose Christ. The contrast is stark between the right way and the wrong way. Yeah, you're having fun right now. You can party right now. You can do your thing and... Enjoy yourself right now, but do understand there's a day of reckoning. You don't know when that is. When God calls you from this life to the next, you want to be sure you're found on the right road. You better get on it before it's too late. If you're not a Christian, come. Say, will he accept me? (laughs) I'm glad you asked. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out, Jesus said, John 6, 37. Come to him. The choice of heaven and hell is before you. It confronts everyone. Which will you choose? Let me say to you who are believers, thank God you're his. Consider what your destiny could have been if he hadn't saved you. You are a vessel of mercy. Praise him and serve him. I don't see how anybody who can understand the gospel of Christ, been saved by his mercy, cannot serve him. That's ingratitude. You ought to be beaten down the doors of service for Jesus Christ. If you're not saved, come to him he'll save you he'll turn your life around spiritually 
give you new life, new joy. Only two ways. Which one will you choose? Let's pray, pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the word of God this morning. We thank you for uh, your truth. The clarity of your truth. The reality of your truth. Two ways present to men, no third option. Your way or the wrong way. God's way or the devil's way. Help those sit under my voice who have not chosen your way to do so today. Move their hearts to trust Christ and Christ alone. Salvation that he will give to any repentant sinner. Forgiveness of sin. Right standing with you. On the road that leads to the fullness of eternal life in your presence. Granted for your own glory and their joy now and forever. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.